Language and Culture with Dr. J. A podcast brought to you by Kulturium.com in affiliation with Quartal Books and Events. Welcome to Language and Culture with Dr. J. I am Dr. J. This episode is entitled From In Vitro to Solving the Problems of the World, an interview with Dr. Gregory Starks. I admire Dr. Starks as a doctor and as a human being. In the first part of the episode, we focus on medicine and medical education and practice. But in the second part, we try to solve the problems of the world. We speak about technology, the overabundant use of screens, about plastic, general culture, work-life balance, and more. But let's just dive into the interview. So would you mind introducing yourself? Just tell us a little bit about yourself, your education, your career. Uh, Gregory Charles Starks, um, professor of obstetrics and gynecology, director of the Division of Reproductive Medicine at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, also medical director of assisted reproductive technology at uh, Research Medical Center. We can start at uh, medical school, so I went to the second oldest medical school in America called Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Uh, four years there, uh, getting basic uh, medical training. Following that, I moved to a uh, what's called a residency, which is postgraduate training, and it allows you to pick specialties or subspecialties, and so I've always been interested in endocrinology, and was going to be a medical endocrinologist, but after six months of doing that, I realized that was not what I wanted to do. Okay. <laughs> so moved into the obstetrical side, and the field of reproductive endocrinology was just coming into play. And two physicians by the name of Steptoe and Edwards in Great Britain started the first in vitro cycles. And in fact, the first in vitro baby is in Britain, and she is a daycare uh, center worker. Isn't that interesting? However, uh, Dr. Edwards, uh, I think, died just a couple years ago. He won the Nobel Prize for in vitro fertilization. So it goes, and it has revolutionized what it is we have to offer now, not only just for reproduction, but for stem cell down the road. So essentially, it opened up a whole new avenue of things, uh, not only just to help people to have children, but also for treatment of cancer, for Alzheimer's, for diabetes, other types of gene therapies that embryos uh, can be a part of. So that's another moral ethical dilemma that we're sort of facing. But when Stepto and Edwards did the first in vitro baby, they had significant moral and ethical issues as well because playing God, they were going to start manipulating life, so they obviously fought that battle and made it through, and here we are today with this technology that really has revolutionized uh, humankind for that matter. So, post-grad, that's uh, how I got into the field, and since that time, uh, it has been a good choice, very gratifying for me. I love what I do. I love patient interaction. And also for young physicians coming through nowadays, they get a chance to see this advanced technology that is in limited uh, areas of the university, but it still allows them to have this exposure, which offers them the opportunity to see indeed if this is something that they want to do. Okay. 
Let me go back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I think some of our listeners will be from Europe, from Germany, mm -hmm. and the system is completely different. So we typically have, you start after high school, you go straight into medical school, what I would compare to our six-year medical schools here. Correct. So typically you don't, in Germany, don't major in, a, in biology or in, and then do pre-med, mm -hmm. but you go straight into medical school. Maybe it'd be interesting for, for some of our listeners, if, they're, if they are students uh, in Germany, uh, to find out a little bit more uh, about the system or how it works to, to go to medical school here. So interestingly that uh, we do have some six-year medical programs in America, and in fact, the University of Missouri, Kansas City is a six-year medical school I right out of I was supposed to go there. <laughs> exactly. So they have shown that they can make that model work. But I think in general, most students, when they go to college, it allows them to decide if medicine really is something that they want to do. I think with the six-year medical schools here, they do have about a 15 to 20% attrition rate, meaning that obviously it was the wrong choice for those individuals. I think the attrition rate out of college graduates who go to medical school, probably less than 5%. Mm -hmm. So I think older individuals, a little bit more mature, having made the decision by going through, you know, a little bit more uh, training and what have you. So I think the university systems here really do allow people the extra two years to determine their needs, uh, whether these fields of, of endeavor are what they really want to do. Uh, I think six year, they always thought that uh, they were too young. But I think the model has really proven itself uh, not to be the case, and in fact, these are very bright kids, and they really do move on. The real question is, some people ask if it impacts their socialization, because you're right out of high school, and you're right into medical school, mm. so that's a mega leap. Mm. And the question is, are you able to develop those mature social interactions that a four-year college actually allows you to do. And think about it, most people when they go to college, that's when they find their spouses, <laughs> that's when they find the career that they're going to. So it really is a transition of maturity, mm -hmm. you know, whereas the question is with the six-year program, you ultimately get there, but it may take a longer period mm -hmm. of time. And um, so it does have some, uh, some pluses and minuses on both sides of it. But four years in the university, I think it was wonderful for me because uh, it allowed me to grow up. And I did a undergraduate degree in microbiology. Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to be a microbiologist. I did a minor. So you get a major and a minor in four years. So I got a minor in chemistry. So I thought maybe I'd be a chemist. But nevertheless, uh, medicine allows you to put those biological and chemical systems together. Absolutely. And so it really allowed me to find the two things that I really loved and to do it in a fashion that had some lifelong rewards for me. Whereas microbiology in the laboratory would have been nice, but you know, you're working with viruses and bacteria, <laughs> chemistry, I'm not sure what I can say about that. <laughs> would have been cut and dry, uh, so no. So I think medicine really does is an amalgam, I think, of a lot of scientific things that people get exposed to, biology, etc. And it really does allow them to put that to some meaningful use. And for me, it, uh, it really has been a realization because uh, I grew up in a solid middle-class family and my mother was a journalist printer. My father worked for the railroad, so we were very everyday common people, so to speak. 
no one in my family had ever finished college, and I have an older brother who is an Air Force pilot and what have you. So nevertheless, uh, they encouraged, so education was encouraged very strongly in my family. Uh, my brother was a football player, so he got more slack than I did. But <laughs> did you play any sports? Uh, I did. I played baseball and, uh, and tennis um, and played that in college for a couple of years. But that was not my calling, you know, so essentially. But I stumbled into microbiology because I took biochemistry, and I loved that. And chemistry was great, but it was dry. And somehow someone encouraged me to take this class in microbiology. 400 students in the class, two A's, I got one of the A's. No. Absolutely. Ah. And as a result of that, I actually won an American Cancer Society scholarship oh, wow. from that, which allowed me, once again, to expand what I was doing. Uh, I had a scholarship, but it was not as good as the American Cancer yes, Society I can imagine. scholarship. <laughs> exactly. And so that really did get me on a different track. Uh, so once again, stumbling into an area that brought things together for me, always scientifically driven though. I mean, so my whole background and my whole interest and my love has always been science and it's just a matter of how you put it together. But microbiology actually sort of geared me towards living systems and out of those living systems now obviously was able to move it on into medicine at an even higher level and here we are. So, so typically the average American college student interested in medicine will complete a degree, a BA in a field. A four-year degree. A four-year degree, most of the time related to science, but not necessarily. What part of it has to be. Well, the pre-med requirements have to be met, Met, yes. but you could major in art history. You could, right. Or so minor, at least. Yeah, your major could be art history, but you still would have to have the minor that got you through chemistry and physics, and so you would still have to have that scientific background in order to even qualify to get into medical school. Right. So we have the physical and then the clinical, which, which, which is how we divide it up in, in Germany. So the first two years are going to be the physical, and then that's our pre-med. Okay. And then you have the clinical, which is your medical school. Mm -hmm. So so that's that's just, just, you know, sort of more or less how it works. Let's say I've finished, let's say I'm a German exchange student, and I've completed a degree in biology in Germany. Mm -hmm. Can I apply to medical schools here? Ooh, that would be difficult. That okay. would be very difficult because American universities have their own uh, qualifying uh, credit system that they like to use. And then medical schools really have an even more stringent qualifying uh, set of rules that they actually use. So to transfer those credits from a European university to an American university, I think that would be difficult. Uh, and even if you were to transfer some, you may be able to get some. But in general, I don't think most of them would actually transfer at all. So it would be easier to complete a medical degree in Germany, for example, and then look into a postdoc or or look into a fellowship or look into what, what are some of the possibilities? Right. So if you finished your medical training in another country, regardless what it is, there's a qualifying exam that you can take that allows you now to be able to get into American programs. So The boards. Boards, right. So they have a national medical board that is specifically that qualifies foreign medical graduates in order to be able to do American uh, uh, residencies and fellowships themselves. But you have to pass that regardless. 
So unfortunately, many people will come in having finished four years of their training in some other country. They take this exam, but the exam allows them to be able to get into an American residency fellowship. The four years that they've done does not really count towards that. So they almost have to repeat exactly what they did. But if they don't pass the exam, they don't even get to do that. So there are some people in this country who are physicians from elsewhere but cannot practice medicine here because they cannot pass the qualifying exam. Absolutely. So what? just to tell you a little bit about our system, so you finish medical school. After that, you take your boards. So you do take board exams mm -hmm. in, in your respective country. And then you have, you become an assistant asked. So you become an assistant physician. Okay. Um, this is, I would compare this to our residency system. So you're typically an assistant asked in a specific field. So you'll be an assistant asked, you'll be an assistant mm -hmm. physician in uh, anesthesiology and cardiology in a specific field. Mm -hmm. After that, you become a fach asked, so you become a specialized well, you become an attending, basically, mm -hmm. an att attending physician. But at that point, you take exams in that specific field. So how long so is the assistant? It depends. Also on the specialty. On the specialty. Okay. So it's, it's, it's like the residency. Mm -hmm. But typically, you do two, three years. That's sort of what, what the average is. Okay. Um, and then once you are a facharzt, then you have to um, um, pass the exam. Pass the exam, and you have to then acquire certain further qualifications. So, for example, you have to then also have qualifications in, in emergency medicine, in pain medicine, in pain treatment, in psychology, in et cetera, et cetera. So like to become like a, like the different fellowships um, that allow you then to become an uber arzt and I don't really, I can't really translate this. So those would be like your uh, senior specialists, I mean. Okay, so the, then they're a senior specialist. Right, uh, so those, I think in Europe, they're like your consultant, so they're the person that ultimately the decision goes to, yeah. So kind of our attending fits that role, because by the time you finish medical school, do your residency, whatever your subspecialty training is, the moment you finish, and, and so fellowships can run anywhere between two to four years, depending upon the specialty, you know. Uh, but by the time you finish your fellowship, you are now a, with the exam, a board-certified anesthesiologist. Now, if you want to do a further fellowship in anesthesia on pain management, see, that's another year to become a pain management specialist. But... You still, your foundation is that you are an anesthesiologist, which means you can do all the things that anesthesia does. But there are no requirements, for example, in pain management. Yes, that's there, a, there, or there there's are. an exam for there that. There is an exam. Right, so you have to do the extra year beyond anesthesia. If you wanted to be an intensivist, which means you run the ICU and what have you, that's an extra year for the anesthesia above the basic four years to become an anesthesiologist. So... Fellowships is what they're called, and it's the extra year or two to become like a super specialist. You're not just a specialist anymore. You are a sub or super specialist because you have this one qualifying area, and all you do is pain management. You don't do regular anesthesia anymore. Most of those people are pulled out of the regular pool mm -hmm. of specialists themselves. So, you know, you're looking at something that's four to six years in totality from residency through the specialty 
to the fellowships. So, you know, some people can do two or three fellowships if they want to. I don't know why you would, because essentially you can only, <laughs> if you're a pain management specialist, it's, you could certainly want to do the ICU, but I don't know why you would, because basically you're seeing all these cancer patients and patients with okay. pain and what have you. So those areas have been carved out uh, within the subspecialties within a field. OBGYN, so for example, OBGYN has four subspecialties. One is urogynecologist, so that is basically pelvic reconstruction, bladder, yada, yada, yada. The second is reproductive endocrinology, which is infertility, IVF, etc. The third is GYN oncology, so you basically do all the cancers of females, ovarian, uterine, cervical, vaginal, vulva, etc. Breast the last as well one, or not? Breast as well? Not breast. Not breast. Yes. Why? So breast is pretty much the surgery. It's under the surgery. It's got to be in the yes. surgery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You have some training in it, but essentially you're pretty much below the umbilicus, mm -hmm. so everything below the belly button. And the last one is maternal fetal medicine, MFM is what it's called. So you are a pregnancy specialist for high-risk pregnancies. Huh. So maternal fetal medicine, so that's multiple pregnancies, abnormal pregnancies, babies that don't grow normally, uh, all the genetic studies on the pregnancy when it's inside. Uh, mm -hmm. They do um, uh, biopsies uh, for karyotyping. So they are the ones who take care of the high-risk diabetic, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that is a carve-out, so those four subspecialties, and that's three more years of training is what it is in order to get to those areas. Okay. So what are the steps in, in a hospital career? Or maybe you can talk a little bit about, about the how do most physicians decide whether to stay working in a hospital? Well, we are right now at the hospital here at mm -hmm. Research Medical Center, but you have a practice that is your own practice, or you're in a group. Perhaps you could talk about the business side of it a little bit. So I think typically when people finish their specialty, subspecialty training, they have to, in general, decide, do I go into private practice? So private practice is reimbursement for the services you do, and you're in a group where they really have minimal academics. It is basically patient care-driven uh, centers of excellence, uh, but it's really patient-centered, and that's private practice. Then you have the academic side. Those two things are totally separate. You do have some people who overlap between the two. Most people in private practice will do some teaching because residents will rotate through in general, but it is not, a, it is not their primary role, and they're not... Uh, recognized and or paid for that. Whereas the academician is a full-time academic, full-time teacher of residencies, uh, and they are paid on a salary, per se, for that. By uh, a hospital or by a university? Usually uh, by, by the university, but some hospitals, big hospital systems, do have residencies. This hospital, Research Medical Center, has a family practice program that has 38 residents, and they basically rotate through all the specialty services here to get their training, but it is under the umbrella of a private hospital, not a university. Uh, but the vast majority of teaching uh, uh, entities have to be under the umbrella of the university because the American, the varying, various accrediting bodies almost mandate that because you have to meet certain requirements and the private practice of medicine has a difficult time managing that because 
you just don't have time to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and all those uh, mandated things that they actually have. You do have a few people who overlap in both. I do that. And so um, people who have subspecialties can probably overlap both worlds, okay, simply because of demand. So the university, for example, does not have any full-time reproductive endocrinologists because, for lack of a better word, it's not lucrative enough. Private practice makes reproductive endocrinology very lucrative. So very lucrative type of subspecialties, plastic surgery, for example. <laughs> plastic surgery is never in an academic institution. They have you know, big private practices, but they may spend some time teaching within mm -hmm. that. And you do need those services to meet requirements. So I run a reproductive clinic for the residents one half day a week, and therefore they see patients. I uh, see patients with them, we check them off, we put, so it allows them to uh, learn how to manage these patients, and these are their patients. They also spend six weeks full time with me in my practice managing the patients, okay. but they are my patients, not their patients. So they get a chance to manage their own within the university setting. They get to assist in the management in the private practice setting. Are the residents paid? The residents are, are paid yeah. residencies or, or yes oh yes yeah residencies uh, once you finish medical school and you move into a residency it is a uh, it's a it's a very nice job <laughs> uh, now yeah, they make like forty thousand dollars a year so wow. it is uh, yeah so the demand but residencies really do provide a service for the hospital mm -hmm. and in America hospitals make money they really do you know through oh my gosh, Medicare and Medicaid and all the other things are, which are reimbursement. So when residents see all these patients within the university, they are the university patients, but, and then there's an attending over the residency who actually signs off on all of this, but the hospital is reimbursed for those uh, services that the resident delivers. So the resident is being paid, but they're not really delivering a free service. So sure. it's not just purely a training type thing. So yeah, yeah, it's a... Uh, you do get paid for it, yes. <laughs> You've also taught, correct me if I'm wrong, at the University of Kansas Medical School. Uh, I've taught there for a short time, uh, but my... So, the University of Kansas has its own reproductive service, and so we as consultants can occasionally go and visit with them. But they have a full-time, in-house, full subspecialty service of the four things that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. So, they do have full-time reproductive endocrinologists who are not in private practice. So they're university-based and what have you. And some people elect to do that. But 90-plus percent of all reproductive endocrinologists are not in the academic setting for obvious reasons, without a doubt. But no, I think uh, all doctors in the country probably get to have some contact with residents, which almost like an apprenticeship in a way, you know, mm, and sure. so some of these structures, so for primary care, for example, like the Gockford residents here, they basically get to go and spend one-on-one -on -one with a doctor out in his rural, his or her rural clinic, and they actually get to help to manage those patients mm. on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So they really do get a much tighter, uh, practical type of approach to patients, whereas in the academic setting, 
you basically always have some. You have a third year resident, a fourth year mm -hmm. resident. So, so you always have so many bodies there, and it really is a tiered system. And so it takes a while before you feel independent, you sure. know, because you always have somebody who is helping you or managing you, but also scoring you because you do have to meet certain qualifications, so many surgical cases you have to do in order to qualify, so many deliveries you have to do in order to qualify. So uh, it is a system of measurement, and those measurements, I think, allow people to ultimately finish their four years and meet the qualifications uh, in order to become board certified when they do that. I don't know about the other system, but here, in order to become board certified in any of the OBGYN specialties and subspecialties, you have to take a written board, and then two years later, you have to take an oral board. Mm -hmm. And most specialties in this country usually have a written board, but not an oral board. So yeah, okay. OB has carried this forward for the last 60 years, and um, they love the trauma of it, so they superimpose that on the, <laughs> on the trainees. And who, who's on the oral committee? University-based professors. So... The, um, the boards are administered only by academicians, and uh, it's given twice a year, uh, and you have to do your two years of qualification before you can go. And so part of your case list is one-third of your exam in order okay. to do that. But it's basically, it's three hours of um, not fun, <laughs> and uh, it's divided into three components. One is your own cases, so they look at your cases, and they can question any of the management that you actually did, and then basically there's a general component on obstetrics, and then there's a general component on gynecology. So you have three hours of just showing what you know. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully, right. So what's the hardest part of medical school? What's the hardest part of becoming a doctor? So the hardest part of medical school, so the hardest part of becoming a doctor is getting in. <laughs> okay. uh, only maybe 3% of graduates get into medical school, so 97% of them do not. So it's about a 3% success rate. Once you're in, the hardest part of medical school is the first year. You have to survive the first year. And the first year is not only an adaptation but also it's a change in the intensity. Because think about it, when you get into medical school, now you are with the brightest of the brightest. So the bell-shaped curve is much smaller, whereas in college, the bell-shaped curve is very broad with big tails on it, you know? And so now the competitive group is much, much more intense. So it does definitely adds another level of stress. Once you get through the first year, you've kind of made the uh, transition in second, third, and fourth, I don't think you worry so much about succeeding anymore because you know that you can succeed. You worry about now of the process, learning, and then ultimately selecting what it is I want to do when I grow up. Uh, first year residency, hardest part of residency once again. <laughs> can I do this, you know? Once again, another level of ramping up the intensity because you are now in the subspecialty that you've chosen and this is an even smaller group, you know, so now you're down to eight people in whatever mm -hmm. this residency is. And it's competitive. I mean, it really, really is. And so you're really trying to get through that first year. You're testing yourself mentally and physically in order to see, is this the right choice for me? Because 
I bet the attrition rate is eh, probably about 20%, you mm, know, out right. of that, in that this is not the right field for me. And people do make uh, the changes, and I think you're better off. And many times the uh, residency will make the change for you <laughs> by encouraging you to look elsewhere. <laughs> so um, the first year, I think, of all these things are the hardest. Once you get through the first year, you settle down and realize, yep, this is the right thing. When you move on to the postgraduate, I don't think the intensity there is the same because you now are already qualified in the field, and you are now just trying to hone your skill specifically in a smaller area. So that area of expertise is what you're basically broadening now and what have you. So each level you survive, then the success kind of promotes itself is what it does. But uh, I think the first year college is the worst, first year medical school is the worst, first year residency is the worst, because each one is a smaller venue, you know. A new challenge. Oh, it is, and I think, but each time you get a brighter group of people that have been selected. So each group is a little bit more intense, and therefore you have to work harder at each level. Uh, college is college is just growing up. It really is, you know. You don't have a clue what you want to do. I mean, maybe about the third or fourth year you have, but when you start in college, essentially, you're basically. It's a social milieu is what it is, you know, and you're trying to move into grown-uphood or adulthood because <laughs> essentially you're coming out of high school when you had no independence and what have you. So I think, I find college really as an essential part of, uh, of growth. Colleges have changed a little bit because we've gotten more into the intensity of picking your field and uh, IT and all those things. But before, colleges used to be liberal arts. Mm. You had to take music. Mm. You had to take philosophy. And I think it made you more of a whole person, mm. you know? See, that's not so much the true. Liberal art has kind of lost its way. And so now you come in and you're going to be, a, you know, a computer specialist. or So I think the college has morphed a little bit into something that has lost the bigger picture which is to make you a better human being, you know? And so you finish college 20 years ago, and you know who Mozart was. You finish college today, you may not even be able to spell Mozart, but, <laughs> but you have lost that is what mm -hmm. I think, you know? But don't you think, especially for, for the field of medicine, this extra culture, this extra liberal uh, arts knowledge is, is, is important to truly understand your patients, to see where, where they need help, to... to um, I think that a lot of times we have specialists who can only focus on one aspect of this person's health mm -hmm. or, or one particular illness or one particular problem that they have um, and don't see the, the bigger picture, um, regardless of what, what field we're in. I mean, obviously, even, even with something like cancers or, or, or infertility or um, anything. So, no, I, uh, you know, I think, and that gets back to humanism, I think medical school and residency can cause you to lose part of that because the intensity of the training program and you have to do well and the sickness of the patients you almost lose that side that this is a person who has needs and wants just like you so the humanistic part but i think that's being re-injected back into medicine now because there are some stresses in medicine now that has caused the new curricular to look at mental health for residencies now, 
to sort of cut down suicide rates and and opioid addiction because those things really do happen in the end the dropout rate for residents as well so there has been a refocus on the person and not so much the science because you've already proven the science side of this and that you are now in the doctor area and you have shown that you can be successful but that doesn't mean you can be a successful human being as a doctor and i think we've started to reemphasize that so there are some very carved out times doing residency now where they have these mental health periods where you have to go and spend time with you know various specialists they also have this interesting thing now where the the residency director really has to spend lots of one-on-one time with the resident to see how you're really doing and see that's never been the case before the case before is can you be on call every third night can you function after that third night having being up all night see that doesn't exist anymore so the programs have morphed now you have residency hours you can only work 65 hours a week whereas before I used to work 120 hours a week. I mean, that was standard fare. Yeah, you all call every third night and you learn to function on that heading. So now they made it more humanistic. Interestingly, they thought by cutting residency hours and allowing them to have more time off, that would diminish medical errors. Now that they're 10 years into it, it did not. Oh. So it showed that those people who trained under the intense systems basically made the adaptation and were able to successfully carry on. I mean, we all learned but that. But at what you, cost? Well, <laughs> you mean to themselves. <laughs> to themselves. To themselves, yes. I, we don't know that yet. So, <laughs> but yeah, maybe alcoholism was, you know, family brokenness and what have you because you were out of the house every third day. You didn't know your kids. You didn't mm-hmm. see them. So yeah, that balance, you're absolutely right. I think that probably was the price that the older docs used to Hey, and their whole lives was just medicine and their patients mm. and not their family and their children. Mm. So, you know, mothers and wives had to pick up that slack. That emphasis has been changed now in that residents get more off time. Uh, they can only work 16 hours in a shift. So they get the full day off the next day. Mm. Uh, so there are some new rules in residency training that really allow residents to function more in a normal humanistic fashion so that they do now have time to um, visit personal with, life, that's right with other people so my only negative and I have to throw this in since you were asking me all this the worst thing that ever happened to medicine was a computer the computer <laughs> was the worst thing that ever happened to medicine because it really does allow you to have all these specifics and information and what have you but that took away from the patient so now doctors spend, and that's one of the major outcries by young physicians now, is they spend 30% of their time taking care of the computer and 70% of the time taking care of patients. So the computer now has begun to become an entity unto itself. And as a result of that, you're so busy tabulating and logging and what have you that you don't listen to the patient anymore. So that's something I think that they're going to have to Relook at in years gone by. Somehow, you know, the thought was that introducing computers in medicine would revolutionize medicine and make it better. It's actually gone the opposite way. So the complaints by doctors is tremendous, and it's been so large 
that now we've moved towards a system that's called scribes, where the doctor doesn't have to type on the computer, doesn't have to log. The scribe is in the room, so you brought another person into the loop. And the scribe is usually a medical student or someone who is medically trained to do all the documenting because you spend 30% of your time documenting and typing and what have you. Think about it this way. I just came out of the operating room and I did a craniotomy. I opened your head, I did a brain operation and what have you. Now I have to go and spend 30 minutes typing that into the computer. Mm. See, that misses the point there, you mm. know, because I should be able to go and talk to the family, tell them the things I did, what the prognosis is going to be, what the future is going to mm. be, et cetera, et cetera. No, I have to spend a lot of that time tabulating. Mm. Uh, but the scribe does that nowadays. So, see, we've had to create a whole other industry in order to compensate for the computer. Mm. And so that's one of my pet peeves is that yeah. the uh, computer really has to find its place. And part of computer development and the developers of uh, medical records, they didn't ask the doctor. They just put these algorithms in and thought, well, we know best and what have you. And now they're finding that's really not true. Simple thing, for example, rather than all the typing that doctors do, maybe they should go back to voice activation. We all have to dictate everything that we do. An op note has to be dictated. A history and physical has to be dictated. So therefore, why not make the computer voice recognition? I mean, you never have to sit down and do a bunch of typing and what have you. When you're dictating your op note, dictating this, the computer automatically picks that up and does it for you. So I think you've got to make this um, new world actually fit somewhat with the old world and come up with a new paradigm. Mm -hmm. So I think we've actually lost that. And if you were to ask the average patient that you go in and say, what do you think the one thing your doctor doesn't do you wish they would do? But they would say, less computer. Mm -hmm. So how much time do you get to sp uh, spend with your patients as a, as a physician in, in, in the United States? I mean, how, on, on average? I would say on an average, the average primary care doctor probably 15 to 20 minutes with the patient, and particularly a new patient will probably get 30 minutes, and they will actually be logged in for that type of uh, period mm -hmm. with them. Um, with a revisit, uh, probably 10 minutes with that. What we find here, and particularly in subspecialties, we have teams, meaning every doctor has a group under them. So for example, I have a nurse practitioner, I have a sonographer. So when I put a plan of management in place, the amount of time I have to spend explaining it to the patient is actually diminished. So the patient comes in to see me, we do a basic, why are you here, what is the problem, let's identify that, and then plan of management. Once the plan of management is put in place, the system now is able to do that. They can see the sonographer, they can see the nurse practitioner, she coordinates all that. It's run by the doctor in general, you know, you get to see it or you get to see the data, you get to interpret it. But the one-on-one -on -one of having to institute that is not necessarily there. But let me let me ask you about that specifically. So, so uh, sonographer, you mean sonograms? Sonograms. Sonograms are the same thing as ultrasound? Correct. Okay. So, do you think that some information is lost when you don't do the sonogram or the ultrasound by yourself. I think that German gynecologists, mm -hmm. for example, would not want to interpret, to, to have interpreted 
or, or to have the, the sonogram results mm -hmm. given to them. I think they would say that they want to themselves do the sonogram because you get to focus on that one part that you find particularly interesting. You get to take as long or as, as many angles as you want. What, what, what do you think about that? That's, that's one specific, I think, is the, the ma ma major cultural difference. Major cultural difference. Major yes. cultural difference, I think. Because the sonographer can do 30 cases a day, but she basically, all of that information comes to you. Now, if you have a specific concern about something, you can obviously go in and participate with that, and the sonographer will come to you. But think about it, the vast majority of sonographies are pretty basic, and they're looking for specific things by request. Uh, they shoot multiple shots of it, so you get to review all of those, mm -hmm. and you can do that in two minutes versus spending 20 minutes doing the procedure itself. Mm -hmm. So I think the accuracy and the efficiency of the system with having a full-time sonographer for supersedes the doctor seeing the patient, trying to do a sonography, trying to focus... So, no, I think this system really does allow us to see more patients, to do it in an efficient fashion, and if there's a concern, the sonographer will bring you in, but not you being the primary person doing that. Mm -hmm. I would never want to do uh, my, all my own. No, no. <laughs> really? Well, you know, uh, so for retrievals, we, you know, the doctor obviously is doing the sonogram and retrieving the eggs, but in general for everything else, the sonographer, and I'll say this, is so much better than we are. I mean, they are. Because if I'm doing they're a specialist in this. That's right. They have to pass boards and exams and you know, in order to become that. And they can do it in one-tenth the time that I think the average doctor can do it, really. Because, you know, Dr. Schmo is doing 10 patients a week. Well, they're doing 100 patients a week. I'm going to get pretty good, don't you mm -hmm. think? And so the sonographer we have, for example, I mean, she is uh, 25 years. She's outstanding. I mean, abnormalities, what have you. She will pick them up in a minute, but then she will involve you at that point you know, okay. in terms of that. And then, obviously, those patients that have these things you're concerned about, they do get triaged to the next level. So if you have an abnormal baby, that goes to the maternal fetal medicine specialist who now have 3D ultrasounds. I mean, they have the next level. Mm -hmm. They can define what it is more specifically. They can put a plan of management in that needs to be, and pretty much they'll keep the patient and take care of those things. Same thing with cancer. When you identify something that you're suspicious and think it's a cancer, you send them to the GYN oncologist. Mm -hmm. The GYN oncologist now is able to focus and hone in mm -hmm. on those things. So I think... Uh, Doctors doing sonography in the U.S., not going to happen. Mm. So, no, because the efficiency would be lost, but I think the accuracy would be lost. I think doctors, if I had a primary care doctor doing a sonogram for me, I would always do it again because <laughs> I would mm. not believe the information because essentially their training is not such mm. that they're going to be able to tease out those subtleties that you're looking at. Okay. How, how much is sonography or ultrasound, I call it ultrasound, uh, used or what, to, to what degree? Because it seems like in, in Germany it's used for everything all the time, uh, extensively, more than MRIs, more than everything else, more than just... Yeah, I think ultrasound as a technology really is, as a first-line technology, is cost-effective, 
it's readily available, anybody can do it, and the information is readily available as well. So I think as a, but it has an abuse potential to it because you have people doing it who don't know what they're doing. Mm. They're interpreting things that really are not true. So the patient is getting erroneous information, and now they end up having to do more tests or seeing another doctor for something that really is not accurate by any means. Uh, secondarily, my concern about uh, sonography is, by, by everybody, is that um, it takes away from the exam of the patient. So most young physicians coming out now, he mm -hmm. or she have a tendency their first inclination is to get a scan mm -hmm. rather than maybe putting your hands on the patient, examining the patient, uh, making a differential diagnosis what these are the possibilities. Well, you don't even go down that road. Oh, you got a mask? Uh, that's right. You told me you had a mask. Let's get a scan on it. I don't even have to think about, well, what are the possibilities? Had I examined that patient, I would say, well, is this a fibroid? Is this an ovary? Is this an appendix? Is So the exam and that's what many patients will complain about. Well, the doctor never examined me. Well, see, that's lost. And that art has been lost because everything is imaging. So you get the sonogram, and the sonogram says, well, it looks like this. It could be, well, I better get an MRI now to now. So that means something that if I put my hands on the patient's abdomen and she had an 18-centimeter uterus, I don't need an MRI to tell me that she has an 18-centimeter mass in her abdomen. The sonogram should help me to tell what that mass is. And now we move on to surgery, taking it out. No, well, we go from the sonogram to the MRI. So you just add on another $6,000, you know, for something that probably should have cost $1.50, you know. So examining the patient. So that's my major thing uh, when I teach medical students is examine the patient. Put your hands on the patient. You know, and patients really do want that back and forth because essentially the doctor now can give them an immediate feedback. Well, I really don't think this is significant. That mole that you have really is not a melanoma, you know. Well, I don't have to send you to a dermatologist to have them biopsy, you know, see what I'm saying? So essentially we have gone from, we want to contain costs in medicine, but if anything, we've actually gone the opposite direction because we no longer examine patients. You don't take a good history. So you kind of get away from the first thought about patient care is, let's image it. And so that takes away, I think, the humanistic side of this. Talk to the patient. And my whole pet peeve is the patient will give you the answer 90% of the time. If you talk and listen to a patient, they will almost always give you the answer to their problem. Maybe 10% of the time you need some additional you know, laboratory or, or imaging, but I think you'll find Old doctors realize, talking to patients, they give you, and, and they, most patients through the door really have a good idea what their problems mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. They just want to have you define it, reinforce what they're thinking, and then do a, an appropriate test to make sure that is indeed the case. But I think not examining the patient, not getting a good history on the patient and talking to them because you only have seven minutes you really, you really cannot get a feel for what the patient's problem is. So I think imaging, it's a double-edged sword. It really does help you, but like anything else, it needs to be used specifically to reinforce the thinking process. That's why you went to med school, was to discern problems, to define them, and then to hone in. So last part of that is, I have a thing that's called the 
Starks rule. It's called the hundred dollar Starks rule. So <laughs> when a resident is with me and we see a patient, I tell them right off the bat, you got a hundred dollars. That's all you got. So you can't get an MRI for a hundred dollars. Okay. <laughs> that's a few thousand bucks. So what can you do for a hundred dollars that's going to help you to get close to this patient's problem? And if you get the right test first time, you get more money. So uh -huh. it is a way of toning the thinking, you know. So when the patient tells you, I'm having pain, it's on my right side, it's on the right lower quadrant, you push on my belly, it hurts more. And you say, hmm, sounds like an appendix. So you get a CBC with a white count. If the white count is elevated, and right test. You know, now you can move on and get imaging or what have you. So I think it really, those little rules allow people to back up a little bit and it takes them off that imaging page because you don't have enough money for imaging. And think about it, a lot of patients who come in, they sometimes don't have the money, don't have the dollars. And if you can actually get to their problem with minimal expenditure, I think patients appreciate that, you know, and back in the day before you had all these uh, new little uh, toys, the old physician would examine the patient, put his stethoscope on their heart, listen to their chest, and he could tell you what the heart abnormality was, which valve was affected. He could also listen to the lungs and tell you where the pneumonia was and whether it was a viral pneumonia. Or, and granted, you now get the other uh, tests to substantiate that, but 99% of the time, they were right. And that was called the art of medicine, you know? And think about that, that was cost effective. You know, I mean, he was a good doctor, and the patient appreciated that. Yes, you have a pneumonia. I think it's on your left side. It's in the base. I think it's probably due to your asthma. This is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. Okay, versus MRI, that's going to be a CT on you, and it's going to be, please. You know, science is great, but the art of medicine, once again, is talk to the patient, touch the patient, and you'll find that most patients will say, yeah, you know, my doctor touched my arm, you know, or held my hand or whatever. That's what they really want, you know, and to say that, well, you know, I put a needle through your belly. I mean, that's not what they want, you know. They, really, uh, they know you can do that, but they want this other part of how do we connect, you know. And, and, and they want to let you do that. They, they don't really want to know. It's, it's like, it's like uh, when you're sitting uh, in, in, in an airplane and you're going through a storm. I don't really want my captain explaining to me how strong the winds are right. or what he's... No, I've had that before where it's sort of, there are northwestern winds at I don't know how many miles. I don't care. I, mean, right. I want him to say sort of, uh, we're going through some turbulence. I'm here. I'm taking care of it because he's the expert. And I think that's the same thing with medicine. You want to hear, I'm here. I'm aware of you. I see you as a person. Right. And let me do the needle and the whole, the whole business that I know better. So it's... And what I found, the other last little piece of that is that if I'm there at the time the patient is being put to sleep, that always makes their case that much better because they know that somebody else is not coming into the room to do their surgery, that the doctor who is taking care of them is there at the time they go under and usually at the time they wake up because I'll go by and see them. But I think all of that is reassurance and the same thing with anesthesia, you know, I mean, a lot of times the doctor who saw you in the holding area, if they give you anesthesia, it's a voice you've heard. It's familiarity, you know. And so those are all the things I think in medicine we have lost and forgotten about because the computer is going to make it all better, you know. And uh, 
So, I know you don't have, want to have humor on this, but... Oh, I do, I do. No, do, please do. <laughs> but my uh, my son, who's a, a geronococcologist, cancer doctor, and he was at the Cleveland Clinic, and the famous doctor comes in to see the patient and uh, was going to operate on her, and she said, you know, doctor, I want to have that robot surgery, you know, and uh, Dr. Rose, who was the, the famous doctor, he says, oh, no problem, Miss Jones, we'll be happy to use a robot for your surgery. And she says, and by the way, what are you gonna be doing while the robot's doing the surgery? She didn't realize the doctor works the robot. So yeah, she absolutely. thought a robot that's was yeah, doing yeah. her surgery and yeah, what yeah, have you. Yeah. So one of the misconceptions that, you know, that this technology really does is, and not true at all, you know. And, and why do we trust the robot more? Exactly. <laughs> no, really, it won't make I mean, a mistake. Yeah, 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 no, no, yeah, so somehow, People ask for things they don't even know what they're asking for, but somehow they have been programmed to think, well, this is going to be better. Well, the doctor is still doing the surgery, you know, and so, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so. Sure. One, one last thing. Um, how long have you been practicing medicine? Forty years. Forty years. Forty years. So would you mind telling me what's the most, what are the, some of the most exciting developments, especially in your field, over oh. these 40 years? Oh, my <laughs> Loaded question. <laughs> so when I started reproductive medicine, reproductive medicine at the outset was really a surgical subspecialty, meaning we fix all kinds of abnormalities and uteruses and endometriosis and fibroids and what have you. Uh, the field morphed tremendously when in vitro came along, and that really changed the whole dynamic of what we could do to patients. Nevertheless, the surgical size stayed in place because many things you can do to people keep them away from necessarily or makes their IVF experience work even better. If I don't take the septum out, they're not going to maintain the pregnancy. If I don't remove the fibroids, they're not going to maintain the pregnancy. So essentially, the surgical side is important. However, what's happened once again in the last decade or so is young reproductive doctors coming out have lost the ability to do surgery, and they want to IVF everybody. So that's gotten to be a problem here. So what I've seen is we've gone from surgical to in vitro. Now in vitro really over the last 30 years has just changed 110% from the point of view that it has gotten just immensely better, you know? So, I mean, we went from a 15% pregnancy rate up to 70 plus now. How do you look at the patient? How do you approach an in vitro? So, you know, patients who do in vitro really should be no more than 20% of the population. I think 80% of people, you should be able to succeed with them through traditional means. But that 20%, then you have to look at age. That's another factor. You have to look at longevity of their infertility. Is it more than three years? That's called chronic infertility. And you also have to look at the degree of the abnormality. Is it the male factor and its count is awfully low and you can't get it up or what have you? Does the woman have diminished ovarian reserve or her egg number is very low and you can't get it up? So the people who go to in vitro really should be the ones where traditional therapies have failed. And so once you make that decision, then you have to decide all in vitro patients should follow specific protocols that we have. So. AMH is uh, the anti-mullerian hormone, which is our egg reserve, uh, is, dictates the protocol we use. So if somebody has low egg reserve, we use a different protocol to try to get as many eggs out of those people as we can. 
people who have good, normal, high AMHs, we use a protocol to recruit eggs on them because we know we're going to get lots of eggs in them. But too few is bad, but too many is bad. So to get 20 eggs on somebody, that's not good. Get less than five, that's not good. So when we, <laughs> so when we do things to people, we try to algorithmize those based upon the, the information that we have. But once we've committed to in vitro, then we ICSI everybody. So Dr. Wilson, our lab guy, we don't ever put just sperm and eggs together and hope that the sperm penetrates the egg. We don't do that anymore. So this way, you pick the egg so he can look inside the egg to determine that it has the normal polar body and all the things we see. And then he selects the sperm. They do a swim up. So out of, let's just say, a million sperm, you should be able to select the hundred that really are the best of the lot. And then now they take a sperm and shoot it into the egg, which means you know you're going to get fertilization because you're making the egg fertilize. And then ultimately, five days later, the embryo selection, basically, embryos select themselves. Five days later? Five days of blastocyst. So you... you, you we eat? only do day five transfers. I think in Europe, it's day two transfers. At the two six, I think it's six cell stage. Yeah. So four and eight. Four mm -hmm. and eight. So it's either day two or three. We don't do that. We haven't done that in 15 years. So how, how many cells is it at the, at the blastocyst stage? Uh, it's past the cell stage. Pa it's past the yeah. cell stage. So two cell, four cell, eight cell, and then all the, uh, the cell matter now morphs into what's called a morla, which is going to form the human being. And then by day five, it has now separated into the inner cell mass, which is the embryo, and the outer cell mass, which is the placenta. 50% of all embryos do not make it from day three to day five. So basically, by going to blastocyst, you have already selected out the embryos that are going to make a good pregnancy. And so essentially, on day five, you can pick the best embryos. If people are older, more mature, over the age of 37, we recommend they do something called PGS, where we actually biopsy the embryo and do chromosomes on the embryo. Because once you get past 37, 60 to 70% of embryos are going to be abnormal, even if they make it to day five. So the PGS allows you, so if I have six embryos and only three are good and three are not, even though they all look the same, I want to know which three are normal. So PGS nowadays, young reproductive endos biopsy everybody, they PGS everybody. Older guy, we don't do that yet. <laughs> <laughs> so it's age driven. And I just, you know, you're spending another five to $8,000, but if you're 27 years old, you don't really need PGS. I mean, you don't. So PGS is just another tool that allows you to further select normalcy for patients who need it. So if you're 40 or 42, you definitely should have PGS done. And so you pick the blastocyst, and if you have a high quality blastocyst, you put it in it should implant 70% of the time, you know, so that's what good embryo. So the process now allows you to basically tighten down the normalcy parameters. You make it to day three, that's great, but of those eight cell embryos you have, which ones are gonna make it to day five? Because if the eight cell doesn't make it to day five, then it's not gonna make a pregnancy. So essentially, it makes it a much more efficient process and a much more higher. So day three embryos, you put them back, maybe 40, 50% of the time, you guess right, 
and then you have one or two to implant. Uh, when you get to day five, it's going to be a higher percentage because they've already selected themselves. So we select the egg, we select the sperm, we select the pregnancy. So you now are basically able to pretty much almost get normalcy, really. And beforehand, you make sure that the uterus is receptive. You make sure that the pregnancy can be then also maintained. Correct, yes. Yeah. So we do a little uterine test called a sonohistogram on everybody before we take them to retrieval because you never want to put an embryo into an abnormal uterus. Uh, remember, the patient's success is our success, so everybody wants to be on the same page. So yeah, so we know about eggs, we know about sperm, we know about uterus. And so with those three things, you can basically put a pretty good picture together that allows you to have success because you have teased out all of the things that contribute to loss. Now, immunological factors and all that, those are really hard to, to tease out. Unfortunately, you almost have to lose a pregnancy before you go down mm -hmm. that road, but that's only maybe 10% of people. So about 90% of people, you should do pretty well with them. I think we're getting to the limits of the technology and that there's only so much you can do to an embryo. Now, just kind of as an aside, there's a new thing called CRISPR that's out there now. It's called gene editing. That's from in vitro. That's an offshoot of in vitro. I think that's going to be a good thing if it's not abused, and it was just recently abused in China not too long ago, but where you can actually take sickle cell disease, for example, and remove the abnormal genes for producing the sickle uh, hemoglobin and put in this new gene, and obviously it goes away. I think that's going to happen with lots of other diseases so that as we go forward, so that means the, the field of reproductive medicine has opened up multiple channels, not just a single channel. Cancer therapy, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and now gene editing. So just so many things in there that are an offshoot of this. But it's really understanding the basic human genome is what it really is. So the exciting part for me is yes, to have been a part of this and to see how far we've come, you know, from just sperm and egg. I mean, that's where we were. And, you know, early on, it was a two-cell embryo. It was like, oh, my God, this is the best thing uh, that we've ever seen. We weren't even close, you know. And so the technology certainly has just revolutionized humankind, I think. So, you know, if we can eliminate some of these really bad diseases that we see in people, uh, you know, if you can eliminate some of the hearing defects that we actually see and you identify early on, uh, I think it just adds to a better quality of life for people. Diabetes, if I can eliminate that gene early on in utero life, I think that, you know, you get away from diabetics and all the things that act. Plus, think about it, it helps to cut health care costs because I'm going to have a healthier individual. Now, everything has to be within the scope of realism and not going into the sensational, you know? so cloning of people, see that's wrong. Easy to do, but that's wrong, you know. Um, taking embryos and making sure, you know, you had, you know, blue eyes and blonde hair. And I mean, so that kind of editing, I think, it, sex selection should only be done, in my opinion, uh, as needed. So if you have hemophilia, then maybe, you know, you do select embryos because girls don't get hemophilia. So 
But the technology has to be used wisely, and I think if we don't use it wisely, we really lose that humanistic side once mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. So you don't want science to totally take over everything we do with loss of why are we human, why are we here, and what can we do to make things better. And see, I think that's kind of computer has moved us a little bit off center from that. But I think, you know, you look at some of the computer manufacturers and what have you, and they're saying, well, you know, maybe we need to go back a little bit, you know. And the worst thing I ever saw, and this is my little, is I was standing on the corner of Fifth Avenue and Broadway in New York. And you got all these beautiful edifices and what have you. You know what most people were doing? Hmm. I can at guess. Their, that's right, <laughs> looking at their hands. And you see people walk out in the traffic because they're so busy. So the point being is the technology. That is really, I mean, it is worse than the States. Tell me about Now it. being here, I really find it uh, appalling. It is? It's, it's in waiting rooms. And uh, I'll tell you about my pet, pet peeve or my, one of my little shocks. We arrived in New York, and I wanted to get the kids something to eat uh, while we were waiting for our flights to Kansas City. Every single table, every single surface had these little, you know, these little screens mm -hmm. that you can play video games on, watch movies on, or pay through. Correct. And ever since then, every restaurant we've gone into, every single table has this. This is an atrocity, if Correct. I may. I, I'm not trying to step on anybody. You talking it to is you an kids. absolute atrocity. Correct. Um, I took the kids out. We were in Topeka the other day, and I took them out to, at the, we were at the museum, Kansas History, Museum of History. Mm -hmm. And I took him out to Red Robin right next door. And I had to take this little atrocity and, and face it to the wall and take it, sort of remove it as, 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 as a present from the table. It, right? Because, well, no, they didn't even want to pay it. They just wanted to stare at it. They just kind of, you know. And then I, and I, and then I looked around, and there was a family next to us in a booth. It was two parents with two kids. Each of the parents was on their cell phone. That's right, and the kids. Each one kid, they had two of these things, these screens, that they were pl playing with. Then two more adults arrived. So, I don't know, aunts, uncles, friends, whoever. So this is four adults with two children. The adults then put away their cell phones and started talking to each other. The kids, the food came. The kids stayed with these screens throughout the meal and ate their meal that way. Mm -hmm. I was there alone with three kids. We talked and laughed and joked and sang and, you know, I don't know, they argued about who got more onion rings, but it, there was actual interaction. Right. And I thought, I, 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 that is something that's really shocking to me right and now I in the States. Europe I think mean, Europe does that a little bit better. Family time, talk time, what have you. Sitting down to dinner and, these, and In the walk. States, yeah, I mean, uh, it just, this has just taken over. And the saddest thing, I, I was listening to NPR uh, a few weeks ago, and it was either Google or Apple or one of the big companies. What they had to do with their new hires is bring them in, teach them to look at the person, say, hello, how are you? Because they didn't know how to do that. Teaching basic structure of interaction, you know? So it's almost like we've lost that. You know, people would rather communicate through Twitter and Facebook and all that rather than directly talk. Phones are not used to talk on anymore, right? I mm -hmm. mean, people don't really talk on their phone, they communicate. So I think, once again, that's technology and it's moved us way off center. And the question is, how do you get people back to this center place where you can appreciate the Grand Canyon, mm -hmm. you can appreciate 
the, the Eiffel snow. Tower. You can, yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, that's what makes us who we are, you know, and those things are going to always be there. They really are. So I think there has to be some balance, and we've kind of lost that balance. So, and I think the manufacturers of these are realizing that too, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a little bit of pushback, I think, by... Google and what have you, I think, to try to... Well, I think it's really important. Yeah, I think it is, too, because essentially um, that's what makes society work. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you just said, if parents are not talking to kids and kids are not talking to parents and they're not talking to each other, you've lost what the family structure is really all about. Well, you, you can avoid conflict. I think people maybe possibly, you know, sort of if you, if you stick your kids in front of a screen and it's staring at this whatever computer or, or, or screen or TV or whatever, uh, you're avoiding conflict. Correct. So, so it is also, and not just with children, but with your, with your colleagues, with your friends, with, you know, so you can avoid conflict by not meeting person to person, but rather just sending a text. It's much easier to calm down and then write another more polite text back. But is that the point? I mean, do you know what I mean? I think conflict, for example, is part of human life. Sure. The conflict that you Resolution. have with your right, that the conflict that you have with your children is a necessary conflict. You have to argue through things. You have to teach them how to behave, how to how to live. Uh, you you you. Uh, they they can be angry with you. You can be angry with them. That is, there is nothing wrong with that. That 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 is part of interaction, and we're so afraid of that. For example, we call that socialization. Socialization. That's so, right. so 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 there is. Is, uh, there is disagreement, there can be anger, there can be a range of emotions, which there can totally be, normal. which is totally normal, mm-hmm. there can be problems, there can be, uh, um, people can be bored, people can be uh, unhappy, it's all okay, it's right. all acceptable, it's, it's, it, there should be room for all of it. Um, but we've moved that off of the playing field. And instead we just want to be placated, or we want to sort of uh, uh, reach a... a, a, a but how do you know, get a parents? steady state that, that uh, doesn't disturb anybody. So. Well, how do you get parents to buy into that, though? That's the problem. How do you get people to move away from... And you have to cognitively make that happen. Phones are going to be down for the rest of the evening after 6 o'clock at our house, and you cannot... I mean, that's a conscious effort in order to do that. And if you don't do that, it's not going to automatically happen, you know? Sure. So I think we've got to recapture that high ground, and it may take a generation to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I think we have millennial Gen Xers, what are we into Gen Z is now. I think we have lost that. And the question is, with climate change and all the other things, you are seeing a young populace coming into play now that are concerned about these things. And in fact, that might help us to move back to center a little bit more. Okay. Because, you know, I mean... They're going to be faced with these real things that we're actually looking at. Well, that's another. Now we're, we've gotten off the topic from, from medicine, but, but it's okay. It's, it's yeah. also um, um, that's the other thing that, that that has shocked me being in the states is the amount of plastic. Um, I went to a yoga party. It's a long story. Just just uh, uh, last weekend. And uh, these are all uh, individuals interested in yoga and, you know, flying and, and sort of uh, healthy food, most of them vegan. Uh, so, so this is, if, if I were to do this in Germany, all, there would only be either china, real, real uh, porcelain plates, or glass, or, 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 or uh, High quality. something, some sort sure. of a, a, an actual material, right. uh, or paper plates possibly, but most likely bamboo. 
for sure we'd have bamboo forks. Um, there would be no straws. There would be no styrofoam. There's just no way that in this subgroup, in this group of yoga-loving uh, vegans, that you'd have that. And that's one of the things that, 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 I, that shocked me, that still there were styrofoam cups, plastic plates, plastic forks, and I thought, no, 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 yes, not like, with this group, not with this group, no. They did recycle it all. So, so at least, uh, at least that. But, but um, yeah, I mean, the yeah. amount of plastic when you go shopping, when you go, when you buy anything, it, oh, that that drives me crazy. I, I mean, at home, I my my husband and I have a conflict with this because he recycles everything and he's really, 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 really conscious of this. And I kind of think, oh, come on, just, just throw it away. But here, I've become him because it's just too much. It's just so you know. I think. Uh... At the end of the day, there is hope. And the reason I say that is um, and a little example. So when I grew up, all music was on wax records, you know? I mean, and the sound of those were just... I mean, then we went on to eight-track uh, eight, uh, tapes and then on to disc and then memory sticks and what have you. But people are realizing you lose something with each one of those technologies. And so have, if you've not noticed record stores are coming back. They are popping up all over the place. I think books are, reading a book online is wonderful. It's not different. the same as having a yeah. paperback book. So I think you're going to start to have this retro generation, uh, I don't know if it's going to be the ones that are there now or the one after that, that realize all these things that my parents and grandparents did, they really weren't bad, you know? And the world really was not a bad place, you know? And so I think uh, those kind of things really ha do have a tendency to recycle themselves. So maybe we're on this uh, peak of technology, high technology, and, da, 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 da. and at some point, you know, I think you do hit a plateau and things have to come back down to some degree. I don't know when that's going to happen. But you know, uh, and those are simple things, but if you listen to a wax record, the sound is just wonderful. It really is. And you don't get that on your disc, and you certainly don't get that on your memory stick. Mm, I mean, absolutely. you just don't. So, you know, I, you know, life is cyclical, and uh, you can never go all the way back to whatever that point is, but there's always somewhere in between. And I think uh, people find their way. Somebody has to lead the way. Probably your kids will be some of those that lead the way, you know. Um, and, and, and I think that's a good thing. When you have parents like you or, you know, parents kind of like my kids where, so my cancer doctor son and his wife's a neonatologist, they have no cable TV. So their kids don't get to watch TV. But they have movie night every Friday. And so the kids get to pick whatever movie they want, you know. And they look forward to it. I mean, they are just, you know... My kids don't watch TV. We don't, we really literally don't watch TV. I have no idea, they don't know what TV is. Right. So, so for example, they were watching TV with my mom, mm -hmm. <laughs> and they said, can you stop it? <laughs> can you stop it? I have to go to the bathroom. They, they don't realize. have a concept right. of TV. They right. really don't. Right. But we do have movies, the same thing, mm -hmm. um, and we make a big deal out of it, and right. we make popcorn, and we have, uh, we have on the couch, we have food on the couch, right. and we sort of... Um, you know, and it's just a big deal, but and see, we all sit a, together. But that's and that's a cognitive decision, you know. There's to nothing do wrong with that. movies. That's <laughs> right, exactly. And they watch animal documentaries, and it, it, we watch screens. But it's a it's a conscious family 
events. We, we, we talk about it afterwards. We, I don't know, we, we, we nothing. Come, so we don't intellectualize it too much, right. but we just, but it's a but fun they come through the door and say, hey, what can I say on TV? I mean, they come home, and what I notice about the, and one is seven, the other is five, is they learn how to play. They play with each other. They, uh, Legos are just crazy at my uh, grandkids' house. I mean, they just look. But the thing is, they have to do that because this other vehicle is it's not, not over existent. there, you know. But they know Friday is coming, so they know Friday. Or is it Sunday, Sunday evening? And, and they have already worked through their mind what it is we want to see, you know, and then they negotiate and what have you. Those are all parts of normalcy, you know. And I appreciate that. I thought taking the TV away was a little extreme because I missed the news. But anyway. <laughs> ah. Well, it's, it's, you know, my, at my parents' house, we, they have to turn the TV off. As soon as we walk in the room, they have to turn it off. So, and, they, and they do it, you know, sort of sometimes begrudgingly. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, right. but, you know, it's snowed in Kansas City on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I did was, uh, I mean, we, we put on as much, you know, clothing as we had with us. And we went outside. There was nobody outside. Yes. Isn't that crazy? Then we went on this, yeah. and, and my parents had this amazing uh, park and, and trail right behind their house, and there were two kids. Two kids! There was nobody outside. I saw a couple kids looking at us from inside, I think longingly, and we just spent two hours running, and we got wet and sweaty and, and cold and everything. Well, it was, has to make that happen, was, though, you know yeah, that, right? You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. and, and so, interestingly... Uh, Different parts of the country do do different things, though, you know. So if you live in the Midwest, I think a little bit uh, more of those type of things. Uh, so we have friends who live in uh, South Dakota, and we go up and visit them all the time. God, love South Dakota. Uh, Sioux Falls, beautiful city. Been there. Uh, yeah. Kids I love mean, it. My kids love it. Kids grow up learning how to hunt and fish, and I mean, and those are normalcy type things, you know. So. I think uh, I, I think we'll work our way back. Uh, I don't know where it's going to land, but you know this is all wonderful. But I think somehow we've allowed it to consume us, and mm-hmm. I think we're going to have to move away mm-hmm. from that. Really. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Stark. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Dr. Starks, for taking the time to speak with me. I value your views as an expert in medicine tremendously. And I love to talk to you about life and the world and all that's in it. Thank you again for the interview. And thank you all for listening. This is Dr. J signing out.